This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips. While the newly crowned King Charles has certainly been the focus of attention this weekend, his younger son Harry has also been in the media spotlight. In this episode of Rear Vision, we revisit the men who left the royal family. We're also getting some breaking news out of the UK that the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, that's Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, are stepping back as senior members of the royal family. Our Europe correspondent Bridget Brennan joins us now from London. Bridget, this, this really seemed to come out of nowhere, this statement, and, and the palace seems to have been blindsided as well. That's right, Mads. Huge news here in London this evening with the Duke of Sussex and his wife, Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, announcing that they're quitting the family business, so to speak. When the Duke and Duchess of Sussex announced they would step back as senior royals in 2021, it made headlines around the world. But Prince Harry's decision was not the first time a member of the British royal family effectively decided to give up his job. It happened almost a century ago when the King, Edward VIII, gave up the crown to marry Wallace Simpson. These two decisions, several generations apart, engulfed the monarchy in turmoil and sent the media into a tailspin. And both involved American divorcees. This rear vision explores the contrasts and similarities between these two events. The man who became King Edward VIII was born on the 23rd of June 1894 and, as was usual at that time for upper-class children, was raised by nannies and taught by private tutors. Dr Piers Brendan is the author of many historical and biographical works. The young Edward VIII was the first of a large family of the future George VI king, and he had a pretty awful childhood, really, because his father was a bully and all the children, really, were frightened of their father. This background was very much a sort of Philistine background. He was barely educated at all. And the strange thing was that his father thought that a naval education was what was required, even though he himself had had a naval education and knew perfectly well that a naval education did not fit him for occupying the throne. Still, Edward went to two naval academies, to Dartmouth eventually, where he was bullied a bit and had had a tough time there. So an unhappy and ignorant childhood, his mind was scarcely touched by education at all, and he always said in later life that he didn't learn from books, he learned from life, which is a rather sad reflection on his education. When the First World War broke out in 1914, Edward, by now the Prince of Wales, was old enough for active service. Edward went into the army in 1914. He was very, very keen to fight and he wasn't allowed to go to the front line by his father. His father thought that he would either be killed or captured by the Germans and he was deeply, deeply frustrated. He was very immature in many ways and it wasn't until the middle of the war that he was introduced to sex by a couple of courtiers who brought him through what was then a kind of a rite of passage, introducing him to a French prostitute where he lost his virginity. He subsequently became really entirely obsessed by women. He said that he thought about nothing but women. And he got into a series of terrible scrapes with 
French cocottes writing them irresponsible letters and allowing himself to be blackmailed and carrying on really rather alarmingly as a serial womanizer. Europe was turned upside down by the First World War. When it ended, millions were dead and empires and monarchies had been swept away. But Britain emerged victorious and the British monarchy rode a wave of international prestige. Winston Churchill said after 1918 that there was a drizzle of empires all falling at once. The Russian, the Austro-Hungarian, the Ottoman, and so on. Five empires fell, but the British Empire actually gained in territory as a result of the Treaty of Versailles. And George V said, we are the top dog now. And that was the way he felt. The British monarchy was completely dominant and Britain was between the wars because America had retreated into isolation and Russia was tearing itself apart. Britain was the sole superpower and being the king of the sole superpower was obviously a global position without equal. So the British monarchy had terrific prestige between the wars and it was treated certainly in Britain and probably in the Commonwealth countries as well with astonishing deference. When the Prince of Wales, who was known as the Imperial Prince, because he went off on great tours of the Empire and the Commonwealth, they were intended to, to hold the whole structure together. When he went to Australia, for example, he was absolutely mobbed. People wanted to touch the hem of his garments as though he was a sacred being. So the prestige of the British monarchy between the wars was colossal. It was unequaled anywhere in the world. The war strengthened the monarchy at home as well. While it had little real political power, the royal family wove itself into the cultural fabric of the country, largely through good works. Professor Philip Williamson is a historian at Durham University. The monarchy came to represent a set of public values which were highly regarded by many institutions in British society and indeed were deeply rooted in civil society. So the monarchy had an enormous institutional and popular reach of support, largely because of the First World War. George V made the monarchy, obviously with a large number of advisors and with a great deal of support from other institutions, not just the government and the civil service, but a wide range of voluntary societies. George V made the monarchy into a body which was very involved in charitable activities of all sorts. And that continued right the way through the interwar years. Essentially, what happened in the early 20th century was that the monarchy became a vocation. It became a job. Indeed, as is famously known about George VI, George VI called the monarchy the family firm. There was that sense that they were involved in a job, an employment. Into this world, with George V, Edward's father, still on the throne, and Edward, living the life of a glamorous playboy, came an American socialite, Wallace Simpson. Anne Seber is the author of That Woman, The Life of Wallace Simpson, Duchess of Windsor. She was born into two well-to-do, patrician, if you like, in American terms, elite families. But the problem was that her father died when she was only a child, when she was only a few months. So her mother was always an outsider, always looking 
as to where the next paycheck would come from. And although Wallace's uncle did give her mother Alice some money, it was irregular. Sometimes there was plenty, sometimes not at all. Wallace Simpson arrived in London with her second husband. In 1928, she and Ernest Simpson, so she's now Mrs Simpson, came to live in London and she quickly caught the eye of the Prince of Wales, a newly married American woman who played up all her southern attributes of being a good hostess. She gave dinner parties unlike any that English women were doing at the time. She decorated her flat beautifully. And the Prince of Wales on first meeting was smitten with this woman who was quick-witted, sharp, well-travelled, witty, and above all, she lacked deference. So I think that was the real attribute that this rather jaded Prince of Wales in his late 30s found deeply attractive. Instead of all his aides and courtiers who were fawning over him, here was a woman who was unlike any he had met, stylish and modern and chic, but above all, she was prepared to talk back to him. And Edward found that very attractive. Once George V died and Edward became king in 1936, those in the know assumed Mrs Simpson would remain his mistress, discreetly out of the public eye. Once Edward made it clear that he intended to marry her, though, the situation became a crisis. Several things happened at this point. First of all, the British press had been deferential and self-censoring, so they hadn't been writing about the affair. So nobody knew about it in England. Americans knew about it. But once she appeared at Ipswich Assizes, suddenly everybody knew, and she became deeply unpopular. But secondly, the parliamentarians, the courtiers, the royal family, everyone now panicked. Now there's a palpable sense in 1936 when Edward suddenly becomes king, because George V dies in January 1936, he's organising a divorce for this woman. But even if she's going to be free in that sense, and here is the rub, she's going to have two living husbands. And this is really what makes this story so different from the story we're looking at now with Meghan and Harry. Well, there are a number of things in my view. First of all, here is the heir to the throne, the man who was born with such privilege, who's eschewing everything that's been given to him in terms of privilege and throwing it away for, quote, unquote, the woman I love. Nobody could quite get over that. But secondly, the role of the church is absolutely key to all of this. This was a church-going nation. I mean, it was a church-going world in those days. Divorce was shameful. There was only one ground for divorce. And clearly, Wallace and Edward were playing around with their own rules for that. And the church is important because the Archbishop of Canterbury, Cosmo Gordon Lang, knew full well that he was going to have to anoint a man as king who was going to promise to uphold the laws of the land when actually he was subverting them. Edward was really besotted bewitched, hypnotised by Wallace Simpson. And when he came to the throne after his father had died, his intention was to marry this twice-divorced American woman. 
most people didn't have any idea. So when Wallace Simpson and Edward VIII, the king, went off on a Mediterranean jaunt in a hired yacht in the summer of 1936, all the photographs were shown all around the world, you know, king and his mistress going off on, on holiday, but they weren't shown in Britain. So it came as a terrific shock when the news broke because there'd been an argument between the king and the prime minister, Baldwin, about his intention to marry Wallace Simpson. And Baldwin had said, look, it will be quite unacceptable for you as the supreme governor of the Church of England to marry a twice divorced American woman. I, I think, as a matter of fact, it was American as much as divorcee that put Baldwin off. Being an American was something pretty much beyond the pale, much as some people felt that Meghan was beyond the pale a couple of generations later. This was a shock to the system. So Baldwin said no. He consulted the Dominions. He asked very much leading questions, and the Dominions, apart from New Zealand, fell into line and said, yes, yes, it would be unacceptable for a divorced woman to be queen. And so it came to the fact that Edward said, well, look, if you won't let me marry Wallace Simpson, I'm going to abdicate. And that's precisely what happened. At long last, I am able to say a few words of my own. A few hours ago, I discharged my last duty as king and emperor. You must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. Excerpts from the broadcast of Edward VIII's abdication speech in December 1936. When the king abdicated, the newspapers broke their silence. Once the press did seize upon the opportunity to make news of the position, then there was a considerable division within the press. Most of the press supported the government, wanted the king to give up Mrs Simpson. But the more popular press, and this means particularly the Daily Mail, and the Daily Express, they supported the king. And really it was the support of the great mass circulation newspapers which created the great political difficulty for the government. The government was faced with a position in which public opinion was likely to become deeply divided. And that was precisely what the monarchy did not do. The monarchy represented national and imperial unity the monarchy could not be seen to be causing division because of the ramifications in terms of the whole system of public values, public service and so on. Wallace Simpson fled to France and Edward followed. They married in June 1937. By then, Adolf Hitler had seized control in Germany and the world was just two years away from World War II. Piers Brendan. After the abdication, Edward had no real role now. He was sort of on his own. He was desperately unhappy about the fact that Wallace Simpson was not allowed the title Her Royal Highness. And he wanted to sort of establish her on the international stage. And he made the terrible mistake of agreeing to go to Hitler's Germany. 
in theory, he was studying housing conditions. But in fact, this was an attempt really to launch Wallace Simpson on the international scene as his wife. And she was treated in Germany. She was called Her Royal Highness in Germany. Hitler was used the Duke as a propaganda advantage. And the Duke of Windsor was a political naive. He didn't have any idea about Hitler. In fact, he was anti-Semitic himself. He rather sympathized with Hitler. And years after the Holocaust, he said quite openly that he never thought that Hitler was such a bad chap. So he was culpable, stupid, completely uneducated, and he did his reputation an enormous amount of harm as a result of this visit to Hitler in 1937. After World War II broke out, the authorities in Britain were keen that the Windsors remain as far away as possible, and Edward was appointed governor of the Bahamas. Following the war, the Duke and Duchess returned to France and lived out the rest of their lives as celebrities in exile. There are reports that when the Duke of Windsor appeared in newsreels in cinemas, that there were cheers. There's some evidence that the Duke of Windsor remained popular and in some senses more popular than the King, George VI. Much of that is probably to do with the fact that he was a celebrity, that there was this what seemed to be a fabulous love story. King Edward as Prince of Wales and then as King had been a person of enormous glamour. He was a youngish man. He was good-looking. He seemed to be on easy terms with people. He seemed to represent modernity. In contrast to his father, George V, and then to his brother, George VI, he seemed more exciting, more interesting. The Duke of Windsor never really got back into the good graces of the royal family. It's true that um, Prince Charles went to see him, Mountbatten went to see him, and more or less on his deathbed, Queen Elizabeth II went to see him in Paris. But really, he was an outcast of the family. He was felt to have let the side down, to have disgraced and possibly even damaged the monarchy on a permanent basis. And really, the whole history of the British monarchy since 1936, since the abdication crisis, has been to try and put that whole episode behind them. They've been haunted by the abdication ever since because it did shake the monarchy to its foundations. And the consequence has been that since that time, they've been very, very worried about the various scandals. Princess Margaret possibly marrying Townsend, the whole terrible scandal with Princess Di, and now the Meghan and Harry complication. All this has has haunted the the British monarchy because it felt, really, that it was in danger, really, of losing it in 1936, that the Republicans might gain ground and that the monarchy might collapse. We have no idea what the future holds for the British monarchy, or indeed the Sussexes, but some of the issues that have emerged for Harry and Meghan – cutting their ties to the public purse and the question of titles, have echoes in the Windsor's story. And Seba. Having always believed these two stories are not at all the same, you know, here was the heir to the throne giving everything up, and Harry, after all, is sixth in line, so it simply cannot be compared the same. But here are the two similarities. One of them concerns money. So Edward abdicated in a big, hurry in December 1936, and things hadn't been decided. So he told 
what historians call a suicidal lie to his brother, who became George VI. He said, look, you don't want your brother to be walking around Europe, an ex-king, looking as if he's got no money. So George VI, out of his own purse, gave him £25,000 per annum. Winston Churchill rightly pointed out, you can't have taxpayers contributing to this man who is publicly perceived as having thrown everything away and given up his privilege that he was born with. The final nail in the coffin between the royal family and Edward and Wallace was royal initials. And again, you can hear Meghan talking about that in in her interview. I, I was rather staggered because I didn't believe in 2021, sympathetic though I am, I should say, actually, to their story. I was surprised that titles were an issue for her, but they were very definitely an issue for Wallace and more so for Edward. And here's why. On the eve of their wedding, Edward was created Duke of Windsor, HRH, royal initials. And Wallace did not have those royal initials. Edward always believed that was the greatest insult his family could have paid him because by not making Wallace a royal duchess, nobody would curtsy to her. If people didn't curtsy to her, then she was humiliated and Edward refused to bring her back to England if nobody was going to curtsy to her. So effectively... They were always exiles. Both men left their royal posts because they saw the future that lay ahead of them as intolerable. In some unformed way, what Edward fought for and stood for was the belief in personal happiness and individual fulfilment, which in 1936 was anathema, and certainly anathema for somebody who was expected to take on a life of duty and responsibility. And if you look at one thing that has lasted from his reign, I think it's this. I think we now take for granted that personal happiness and individual fulfillment is an acceptable goal. And you certainly see it in the language of the Duchess of Sussex in her interview. That's very much how she was talking. Those are her her ideals and her phrases. So. In some ways, you can see a direct parallel. I think one of the big differences, of course, is the role of the newspapers and particularly the tabloids. And I know there is this huge accusation of racism at the heart of their interview. And I think that also is something that has to be taken very seriously, although it seems that almost everything was thrown at Wallace. Clearly, that was not an issue. There are 12 sovereign monarchies in Europe. The biggest cluster is in Scandinavia. Denmark, Norway and Sweden are all constitutional monarchies. Most of us would be hard-pressed to identify any of these European kings and queens. Even in their own countries, they're not the subject of endless media attention. Lydia Starbuck is the associate editor of the website Royal Central. I don't think you will find the relationship between the British royal family and the press replicated anywhere else in the world. There's always going to be an interest in royal families, but um, I don't think there's necessarily that 
obsession that there is here in Britain with finding out everything about the royals. As you said, royalty sells for newspapers, but royalty gets something out of being in the media. They've got a product to sell as well. There is obviously an interest in royalty in countries where monarchies exist, and there will be more of a focus in those countries on what their own monarchy is spending, what they're spending it on. If something goes wrong, yes, there will be a focus on it, but there's not necessarily this ongoing appetite to know absolutely everything about what royal families are doing. So if you look at the Netherlands, there was a bit of a row last year because under the constitution, money goes to the king, it goes to his wife, the queen, it goes to his mother, who was monarch until 2013. And as of this December, his daughter, the heir to the throne, the king of the Netherlands, eldest child will be entitled to some kind of state funding because she'll be 18, because she's heir to the throne, because one day it's expected she will be queen of the Netherlands. That caused a bit of a row. So locally, yes, there's always going to be interest in things that apply to those families. But is there that ongoing interest in absolutely every aspect of royal life? I would say no, there isn't. And the other interesting thing is that the British royal family will make the news in other countries that have monarchies far more than those monarchies would make news here in the UK. In the other European monarchies, there's no expectation that extended family members remain on the royal payroll, carrying out royal duties. I think the setup of royal families in other countries in Europe is slightly different. So there wouldn't necessarily be that expectation that someone who's not in the direct line of succession to the throne is always going to be on hand to serve the monarchy. Some European monarchies are actually quite strict about who can be a member of the royal household. So in the UK, the British royal family, you see the balcony trooping the colour, they all come out and you kind of recognise most of the faces and you know they must be related to the Queen. But putting a name to all of them would be very difficult. Actually, if you go to countries like Norway, to Sweden, to Denmark, to the Netherlands, there's quite strict rules about who is counted as a member of the royal family, who can have what title, and who is eligible for royal funding. And once you get to that issue of who's eligible for royal funding, you get to the issue of what do they do to earn their money. And again, the expectation is in other European monarchies, you don't have to take on royal engagements. In fact, when you get to 18, when you get to 21, when you get to a stage where people might have expected you to do royal duties, you go off and you find a job. You go off and make your own way in the world. Now, none of these people are ever going to be poor. They come from wealthy families. They're always going to be looked after. But there is no expectation that they will join the royal rota, that they'll be on the list of engagements, that they'll be going out and cutting ribbons and shaking hands and meeting babies in ordinary times. The British royal family has the supreme advantage, of course, of being a global organization. I mean, because the Queen is the head of the Commonwealth and because she's always taken that extremely seriously and, and reached out to the Commonwealth, she has a prestige which no other monarchy can match. I think it won't be quite the same where Charles is concerned. But again, the Commonwealth couldn't think of an alternative head and Charles himself is going to be head of the Commonwealth. And so it does give them a kind of global footprint, which no other monarchy can have. The other point really to raise is that the British may not be very good at anything much these days, but they are very good at pageantry. And the ceremonial that attaches to monarchy is something which Hollywood couldn't 
put on at all. It, it's quite dramatic, and it's very, very effective that the monarch is is a kind of crowned fetish, and people respond to it in a kind of quasi-religious fashion. So the British monarchy, I think, is probably here to stay. I don't think it makes any sort of sense at all, but it's just um, part of the human condition. Historian and author Dr Piers Brendan. Thanks to him and my other guests, Professor Philip Williamson from Durham University, the writer and lecturer Anne Seba, and Lydia Starbuck from the website Royal Central. Emrys Cronin is the sound engineer for this Rear Vision. Thanks for listening. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.